Every other month of the year, my family will burst into song at random times. But during the Christmas season, that's normal. It's the only time of the year when you can just burst out into song and, and everyone just assumes that you've got the spirit of the season in you. This is one of the things that makes the celebration for us, the music. It's about time that you pull out your four favorite Christmas albums or cue them up in Spotify, just let them play over and over and over again. And you know all four albums have pretty much the same songs on them, but that's okay because you need to hear that song four different ways. You need to hear Michael Bublé's version and Amy Grant's version and whoever is the, the flavor of the week this year. We need to hear all these songs. We need to hear all these different ways. And if you are in the grocery store and you find yourself singing out loud jingle bells to yourself, nobody's going to look at you and be like, what a weirdo. They're just going to think, no, that person, they've got Christmas in their heart. Gospel of Luke gives us a collection of Christmas songs. Luke puts the Christmas story right at the very beginning, the first two chapters of his gospel, and in those two chapters, each scene is kind of punctuated with a time that somebody randomly bursts into song. There's not just four songs, there are four different singers, four different perspectives on the miracle and the mystery of Christmas, and that's what we're gonna be looking at through this season of Advent. The four original Christmas carols. The four great hymns of praise and prayer that are lifted up in the story of Luke chapter 1 and 2. We're going to hear the songs of Zechariah and Mary, of Simeon and the angels. And each one has its season and we'll be taking them in turn. Today we are going to begin with a song about preparation. And it's hard to prepare for something when you don't have hope that it'll actually happen. And when we don't have hope, one of the most important ways we can find hope is by remembering. So today I want to tell you two stories on the theme of remember what you're waiting for. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I want to start with Zachariah's story. That's the first of two stories I want to tell you today. Let's start with one of the few things that we know about Zachariah. Zachariah was old to begin with. There's no doubt about that. I don't know how old he was. I've never been told. All I've ever been told is that he was very old, which is enough for us today. However old you are today, just go ahead and assume that Zachariah was much older. And so that's what makes him very old. We know that Zechariah was old, and Luke also makes sure that we know Zechariah's name. Presumably not just because it's fun to say. Zechariah just has a, a fun little cadence to it. But because his name is a bit of a joke. You see, Zechariah means God remembers. And like most good jokes, Zechariah's name works on a couple different levels. Zechariah was a Jew, a people whose entire existence was centered on a single question. Will God remember his promise to us? Will God send us the promised Messiah? For 600 years, think about how long that is. 600 years, more than twice the age of our own country. 
For 600 years of exile and war, war and famine and occupation, God's people had been looking for the rescue that God had promised to give them. And so Zechariah was named what a lot of people in his culture in his day and time were named, what at least 20 other people that we know of in the Bible were named, probably what his father and his grandfather before him were named. Zechariah was named God Remembers. So that his very existence would be a living reminder to everyone that God hasn't forgotten us. God remembers. God keeps God's promises. And with every day that passed, Zechariah's name, like the names of his forebearers, looked more and more like wishful thinking. Israel was languishing under Roman rule and in Zechariah's day under a puppet king, Herod the homicidal maniac. So it wasn't real clear that Zechariah's name was true. It was not very clear that God remembered Israel. And it also wasn't very clear that God remembered Zechariah personally, because you might remember this, Zechariah was very old. And so was his wife Elizabeth, which means that they had no one to carry on that name to a new generation. If your name means God remembers, and your name dies out, does that mean that God has forgotten? I wonder when you've known what it's like to feel forgotten. Maybe it was back on the playground where you learned how to laugh as if you didn't mind being chosen last. Maybe it's when you've been a whole week without a phone call from someone who shares your last name. Maybe it's when you suddenly realize that you no longer qualify to be the youngest ever anything. You're not old, but you realize you haven't gotten the promotion or the recognition that you thought you'd have in the bag by now. I like to think I'm too young for a midlife crisis, but one of my buddies just bought a Corvette, so. Zechariah knew what it was to be picked last. There were 26 divisions of priests in Zechariah's time. There were 52 weeks in the year. You can do the math. Each division got to serve at the temple twice a year for a week. But only one person in that service was allowed to enter the inner part of the sanctuary, the holiest part of the sanctuary for any given week. So every time the priests were supposed to come together and do their service in the temple, they would put the names of everyone who hadn't been in the temple, and they would put those names in a hat or a basket or whatever, and they would draw out a name. And that priest, whose name was drawn, had the highest and holiest duty in all of Jerusalem. That priest would go into the inner sanctuary and sacrifice to God on behalf of the entire nation for all of that week. And our story begins when Zechariah was very old. And for the first time, Someone draws out a name and shouts, God remembers. Remember, only the priests who had never been in the sanctuary had their names eligible to be drawn. In all the years, in all the decades that Zechariah had watched others disappear into the inner sanctum of the temple, he had watched pimple-faced novices who caught a lucky draw go into the very throne room of God, and he was on the outside being picked last. And we picture Zechariah 
about to go in at this very old age. And you have to wonder what he's feeling. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Would you be excited? Or would you maybe have convinced yourself years ago that going into the temple's not that big a deal? Would you have convinced yourself not to get your hopes up? Why would you care about that anyway? Who cares about all those fancy ceremonies? I wonder if there's something that you used to hope for that you now talk trash about because you've given up on it. Like the Big 12 talks about the college football championship. You have to wonder about Zechariah in this big moment. Would he go in ready to encounter God? Or would he just go through the motions? We wonder which would win within us when we are torn between hope and resignation. How long can we keep praying when we aren't sure we're being heard? How long can we keep up trying to bless people who don't even think to say thank you at the end of it? Anyone who's ever said, just wait, has forgotten that waiting always costs us something. And soon we see what the waiting has cost Zechariah. And the moment Zechariah steps into the temple, he sees the angel of the Lord who tells him that not only is he remembered by God, but all the prayers that Zechariah longed for God have been remembered as well. Gabriel tells Zechariah that he, very old Zechariah, is going to be a daddy. Zechariah's son John will prepare the way for Jesus who will be the answer to all that Israel has been waiting for. And that's when we learn what all this waiting has cost Zechariah because Zechariah has an angel in front of him. And he still doesn't have hope. He has prayed and obeyed all these years, but he lost the anticipation. He's already planning for the doubts that he knows are going to come. He knows that in a week after he's left the sanctuary, Zechariah is going to be wondering, did I just hallucinate that whole thing? Was that real? Give me something to hold on to, he says to the angel, as if he could receive more than the promise of God. So Gabriel gave him what he asked for. Zechariah was so afraid that no one would believe his words, Gabriel gave him silence. Notice what God doesn't do. God doesn't take away the blessing. God doesn't say, oh, I'll find somebody better then. God will not forget Zechariah, even though Zechariah finds it difficult to believe. God doesn't stop being faithful. But Zechariah's lack of faith means that he loses out on some of the joy that ought to come from participating in God's work. I mean, can you imagine what it'd be like for you? Your spouse goes into labor. You look at them with deep love and anticipation and you say to them, you hold your long prayed for son in your arms and you long to sing him to sleep like your father did. But all that comes out is Zechariah got what he asked for. He didn't ask for the grace to raise a child. He didn't ask for the angel to help the 
his wife or the people believe the wild story, Zechariah asked for a sign and he got what he asked for, but he asked for too little. Zechariah got what he asked for, but he asked for too little. And that reminds me of another story about the power of wanting more. This story comes from a woman named Janae Woodard. For the last 20 years, Janae's run a site called textweek.com, which is this massive and totally free website full of the best children's sermons and art pieces and scholarship for the biblical passages that are preached the most around the world each and every week. Janae was an academic scholar herself until her family realized that their youngest child would need extensive full-time care because of his expression of autism spectrum disorder. So Janae left her university job, and she began running text week from home. And now Phil, her son, is an adult, a computer technician. He's doing okay. But when Jen Phil was 10 years old, Janae wrote about what Christmas had come to mean in her family. She said, our family has learned to slow down at Christmas. Phil could not handle the changing scenarios, the twinkling lights, the changes in the sanctuary at church, the presents that just appeared under the tree. He'd fall down on the floor and scream, unable to move, afraid to open his eyes almost constantly from Thanksgiving until well after Christmas when it was all over. We tried to find him a present he'd enjoy, but he'd merely scream and cry in panic at the intrusion on his carefully ordered world. He wanted nothing. He asked for nothing. He hoped for and anticipated nothing and it is no bliss to have a child who doesn't get it, who doesn't want anything, doesn't want to have anything to do with Christmas commercialism, or at least it's only bliss in some made-up fantasy. This year, right around Thanksgiving, we once more asked the kids what they wanted for Christmas. Our 14-year-old sat down and made out her list, and Phil, for the first time in his life, answered the question. PlayStation 2, he said. I want PlayStation 2 Christmas. We just about fell over. His sister gave him a piece of paper. She wrote Phil's Christmas list at the top. He wrote PlayStation Toe under her heading. At Sam's, he said, go to car. So we drove to Sam's, and he led us right to the PlayStation 2 sets, picked out the bundle he wanted and put it in the cart. Open at Christmas, he said. And he watched gleefully as we wrapped the package and then solemnly placed it under the tree. So a PlayStation 2 game sits there wrapped with his name on it and he waits to open it. December 25th, he says. Open PlayStation 2, December 25th. And she goes on to write, it's one more bit of hope. Then he might be able to live just a little bit more independently that one day he will want the things that he needs enough to work for them and survive. This is not a foregone conclusion for people with kids with Phil's condition. Consumerism might be the enemy, but a kid who understands none of it is only a hero in made-up stories. Janae finished by saying, this Advent I am grateful for appreciating what complexity and miracle is involved in such small, selfish acts as wanting something for Christmas and expressing that longing to another person. 
Hear that again. It is a miracle to want something and to share that longing with someone else. And that's what Advent is. It is the season where we share our longings together. We share our longings with every Christian who is waiting for Jesus to come and make things right, please God. And we share our longing with Janae Woodard and with Zachariah, who spent a whole nine months relearning what it means to want something and to share that longing with another person. And when his mouth finally opened, the words poured out of him in the kind of song that can only come from someone who has wanted something for far too long. And Zechariah's song isn't just about himself. He sings about Abraham and David and all the millions of faithful people with forgotten names to whom God had promised a savior who died without seeing it. Zechariah remembers them and it is for them and for himself that he sings, praise the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come and redeemed his people. He has saved us like his prophets promised so long ago. He's remembered his covenant and he's showing mercy to our fathers who have waited so long. And isn't that what the best songs do best? They touch this deep longing that we have for something, for love, for life, for comfort, for something that we've lost. So here's my challenge to us this Advent. Let's allow ourselves to want more. And if we go around and we find that the trappings of the season don't quite leave us feeling satisfied, let's not say it's just too much, but let's admit that it's all too little. And then let us be bold enough to uh, want more. Let's remember that more than what we can buy or what Santa can shove down the chimney, what we want is peace on earth and forgiveness and friendships restored. Let's sing about those things until our hearts and our voices crack. And let's remember to want more for ourselves, to plead for freedom from our addictions, from fear, from trying to prove that we know what is best. And let's remember what we are waiting for so that we don't adopt an attitude of sour grapes or cynicism, thinking that will make us cool or protect us. And when we see the slightest hint of what we are praying for. Let's shout like fools. Let's point to the east like Zechariah and say, there, that is the rising sun. It is the first glimpse of all that we are waiting for. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.